Sibling rivalry. Since the beginning of human history, there has been sibling rivalries. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, the first siblings on earth, didn't get along. And since then, sibling rivalries have dotted history in many shapes and forms. You know, some sibling rivalries are purely playful, competitive, one upsmanship, while some siblings sue each other over money, money or defamation. Some take the form of constant bickering and arguing, while others live out their days amid a, amid a frigid, silent treatment. Siblings have even gone to war against their brothers and sisters in the pursuit of wealth and power and not stopping even until death. These stories of sibling rivalries prove that it's impossible to expect brothers and sisters to get along all the time. Just because you're related to your brother and sister doesn't mean you will like them. So I found four examples of sibling rivalries through history. First one, Edwin and John Wilkes Booth. Long before the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln in 1865 by John Wilkes Booth, he and his older brother Edwin were locked in a brutal sibling robbery. The brothers were both aspiring actors and fought for the attention of their father, who was a famous Shakespearean performer at the time. When John began supporting the Confederates, Edwin had him thrown out of their house for treason. And though Edwin was very famous for his acting talent, even more than John, at the time his legacy has been overshadowed throughout history by his brother's heinous crime. Epi Letterer and Pauline Phillips. These sisters are better known as Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren. They were twin sisters who wrote competing high-profile advice columns during the 1950s. In 1958, Life magazine published an expose entitled Twin Lovelorn Advisors Torn Asunder by Success, which featured bitter exchanges between the two. It seems the feud began in the mid-1950s when Pauline allegedly offered to write Dear Abby for their hometown newspaper for less pay if it promised not to print Ask Ann. The twins were never the same after that, and it's said that this sibling rivalry has been passed down even through the sisters' children. Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. In the 1920s, they created a shoe company in Germany together in their, mo in their mother's laundry room. As business boomed, so did the tension between them. The actual feud allegedly stemmed from a mere miscommunication during a World War II air raid, but barely five years later, the brothers were dividing their company into two separate shoe brands, Addie's Adidas and Rudy's Puma. The rivalry continued for more than 60 years as the Dassler's companies earned the loyalties of different athletes, celebrities, and even their fellow German townsfolk. And then Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. They were sisters and actresses during the Hollywood's golden age and were, no and were known rivals. As they rose to fame, both were nominated for Best Actress during the 1942 Academy Awards. Olivia was assumed to be the winner by many, but Joan famously went home with the Oscar. In a 1978 interview, Joan said, you can divorce your sister as well as your husband's. I don't see her at all and I don't intend to. I got married first, I got an Academy Award first, I had a child first, and if I die, she'll be furious because again, I would have gotten there first. So how many here today have siblings? I have a brother Christian and a sister Lori, and they are actually twins like the subjects of our message this morning. My brother Christian is older than my sister by a whole three minutes. And from my perspective, I wouldn't say that there was sibling rivalry between us growing up. I'm two and a half years older. Sorry, three and a half years older. But there may have been between Chris and Lori since they've only been, they were only born three minutes apart. 
But there was definitely times in the past that my brother and I would not let her forget who came out first. So what about you? Did you and your siblings experience sibling rivalry? Maybe it was grades in school. Maybe it was vying for attention from the same friends or vying for the love and attention of parents that caused the rivalry. Maybe the rivalry was in sports or was in the same job or the same field. This morning we're going to delve into the story of sibling rivalry that started before birth. In fact, it started at conception. There was a war of sorts going on in their mother's womb, and that would be the beginning of a sibling rivalry that would last many years. The brothers would eventually make up and be able to coexist with, with each other. But their descendants would not end up on the same happy terms. We're going to see that the characters in this narrative go through struggles just like the generation before them did. All their struggles had the capability to derail God's will and plan for their life, but it never did because God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. Which brings us to our big idea this morning, that God's will and plan is accomplished even in the midst of our struggles. It doesn't matter what we're struggling with. Maybe we're struggling in our relationships with family at home or with friends at work or in the church. Maybe our struggles come due to our sin and trying to do things our own way. No matter what we're struggling through, our struggles cannot stop or thwart or change God's will and plan for our lives or for this world. God's will and plan will always be accomplished, even in the midst of our struggles. So before we dive into our scripture this morning, let's bow our heads and commit ourselves in the study of God's word to the Lord this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see what truths you have for us here this morning from your word. Open our hearts and minds to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 26. Three points this morning to the message, and the first point is called a devoted. We're going to see this in uh, verses 19 to 21. You can follow along as I read. This is what God's word says. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, for Badan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. So last week, Pastor Stewart brought us the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. Today, we begin the Toledot, or the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, there are a couple of differences in the, this account this morning, the account that Pastor started with last week. One, Abraham is mentioned twice here, but he's only mentioned once last week. The repetition stresses the connection of Isaac to Abraham, who was the one who received the promise. Two, we notice here that Isaac's mother, Sarah, is not mentioned. But last week we saw that, that Hagar, Ishmael's mother, was. Also here it doesn't state that Isaac fathered Esau or Jacob. But last week it stated that Isaac fathered Ishmael. And three, last week was followed with the names of the sons of Ishmael, but here Isaac's wife Rebekah, where she is from and who her father and brother are, is highlighted. This Toledot links the following story back to how Rebekah came to be married to Isaac, and forward to the struggles that Jacob will have with 
Rebecca's brother Laban later on. You know, as we look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham and Jacob seem much more prominent than Isaac. And even in this passage that begins the Toledot of him, his name, of his family, he seems to be overshadowed by his father Abraham and his wife Rebecca. As Pastor Stewart said last week, Isaac seems to be a transitional character, but he's an important link in the chosen line that would lead to Jesus. God used the traits and personalities of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to call his people out of paganism and into a relationship with himself and to make them into his chosen people and a royal nation. You know, you take away Abraham's obedience to the call or Isaac's obedient faith or Jacob's tenacity, which we'll see later. And the nation of Israel probably doesn't survive the exiles to be a nation today. God was able to take all those different traits and personalities and mold them together in order to fulfill his plan and purpose for this world. Those traits and personalities caused many struggles, but God's will and plan was still accomplished. In verse 21, we see the first struggle that could have derailed God's plan. Rebecca's childless. She's barren. She's not able to have children. And so far, we haven't been told how long she's been barren, but I'm going to go ahead a little bit. But in verse 20, we see that they were married when Isaac was 40. And in verse 26, we're told that Isaac is 60 when Rebecca gives birth to the twins. So Rebecca's been barren for 20 years. Now, Sarah was barren for 39 years. I thought it was interesting that it took nine chapters in Genesis for Sarah's barrenness to be resolved. It only took one verse to resolve Rebecca's. Seems like Rebecca's barrenness is a ditto. And it's supposed to remind us of Sarah's barrenness and God's provision of Isaac. And we can presume that Rebecca had all the anxiety, concern, and uncertainty that, that Sarah did during her barrenness. We also notice the contrast in the way that Isaac and Abraham handled their wives' barrenness. When confronted and struggling with Rebecca's barrenness, Isaac and Rebecca did two noteworthy things. One, they were patient for 20 years, and they waited on the Lord's timing to be revealed. They didn't try to figure it out on their own. They didn't try to do it in their own strength. They held on to their faith and the Lord's promises to them. And that brings us to our first principle this morning, which is God is pleased when his people are patient and wait on his timing. On the other hand, instead of waiting on the Lord's timing, we know what Sarah did. She found a surrogate wife for Abraham in Hagar, and he agrees for Sarah's plan to have a son. They didn't trust the Lord to take care of her barrenness. They didn't wait patiently on the Lord to fulfill his promises to them of a son. Abraham and Sarah's struggles and taking things into their own hands had the potential to derail God's plan and will, but it didn't. You know, we know God did the miraculous, and Sarah conceived Isaac in her old age. You know, the entire book of Genesis emphasizes God's sovereignty and the wisdom of his timing. Also in Psalm 31, 14 to 15a, it says this, But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Baldwin says, trusting in the Lord means having faith in his way and his timing, and it demands patience. We can learn a lesson here that we need these same attributes to navigate the tests that are sure to come in our Christian walk. Every believer needs to hold on to their faith, no matter what comes. This is spiritual maturity to hold on, instead of taking the easy road to just let go of our faith. That brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, 
which is to be patient and wait on the Lord's timing in the midst of my struggles. Two, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of Rebekah, but we never see Abraham praying, on the, praying to the Lord on behalf of Sarah. You know, Isaac was devoted to Rebekah. He cared for her. He loved her. And the, and the New Living uh, Translation says, says that he pleaded and he interceded to the Lord on her behalf. And of course, this would not have been the first time in 20 years that he prayed for her to become pregnant. The Hebrew word entreated means Isaac kept pleading. He kept praying on her behalf until God answered his prayer. And that brings us to the second principle this morning. God is pleased when we intercede for others. Wearsby says that it has been said that the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. And Isaac wasn't praying selfishly, but he was concerned about God's plan for fulfilling his covenant. True prayer is being concerned about God's will, not our own wants, claiming God's promises in his word. So we see the Lord answers Isaac's prayer and Rebecca becomes pregnant. And the answer to prayer shows the importance and effectiveness of intercessory prayer and God's response to it. It also shows that the seed was provided by God and Rebecca was able to conceive by the direct action of the Lord. The first two mothers of the promise were able to conceive because God provided the miracle of conception. Ross says in his commentary, Isaac was the son of Abraham, the heir of the promise, and Rebekah was of good stock and carefully chosen to be the bride. But these facts were not sufficient to produce the next heir of the promised line. It will still take divine intervention. <clears throat> Our second point this morning is distressed. And we see this in verses 22 to 23. That's what God's word says. But the children struggled within her, together within her. And she said, if it is so, why am I in this condition? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So Isaac and Rebekah are confronted with the second struggle that could derail God's plan. She's having a hard and difficult pregnancy. The narrator tells us that there are twins in her womb that are struggling with each other. Now, Rebecca doesn't know that she's carrying twins, and she just doesn't understand what's happening inside of her. All she knows is she is troubled and distressed. It is so difficult that she questions whether her pregnancy is worth it. And it's worse because the struggle in her womb was an answer to their prayer. The Hebrew word for struggle means to abuse, crush, or oppress. It implies a violent collision as the children were smashing against each other inside of her. These words were used to depict the oppression of the poor, to describe skulls being smashed together. This is not a mild discomfort, and it suggests that what was going on inside of her was not normal. So in the ancient world, events during pregnancy and birth were considered ominous. Rebecca, realizing there was something going on inside her that she couldn't explain, thought that maybe God is talking to her, trying to speak to her in some way. It seems she wanted to understand God's will for her life and for the life inside of her. So instead of following in her mother-in-law's shoes, trying to, make things, uh, trying to take things in her own hands, she makes a correct choice. In her distress, she goes and inquires of the Lord. 
She realizes that her pregnancy was because the Lord had willed it in the first place. And he would have the answers. And that brings us to our third principle this morning, that God is pleased when we seek his counsel. There were other avenues she could have sought out, but probably because of the influence of Isaac, her husband, in their marriage, she inquired and sought the counsel of the Lord. When we are suffering or struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, or any other ways, we also need to inquire of the Lord. He is pleased when we seek him in the midst of our struggles. Now we're told that the Lord answered her. The Hebrew word used implies that she got an answer from the Lord in the form of an oracle. An oracle was a divine utterance delivered to a person, normally by another person, in answer to a request for guidance. They could also be indications of favor or disfavor, communicated through designated mechanisms, such as with Gideon and the fleece. Later in Israel, divine response was given by the means of Urim, the Urim and the Thummim, and the breastplate on the high priest Ephod, or by casting lots, or was given by the prophets. We're not told how Rebecca received the oracle, but if we take it on face value, we can believe that she received it directly from the Lord. The oracle answered her question of what was happening to her and why. The Lord tells her that there are two nations in her womb, and two peoples will be separated or divided from her. This means that she will be the mother of twins. It also means that their descendants will be incompatible and not be able to coexist with each other. And this divining was going on even now in her womb. This divining reminds us of the tensions between Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, in which separation was the best resolution to the struggles between them. And this same resolution will be played out later with Jacob and Esau. The Lord goes on to tell her that one of the peoples will be stronger than the other, and that the older will serve the younger. This expressed God's sovereign choice of the younger son getting the blessing instead of the older one. Before the twins were ever born, the Lord was predicting what would happen in their later lives. The struggle within Rebecca's womb foreshadowed the competition that would come later, resulting in the older brother serving the younger one. Later in Genesis, the nation of Edom that came from Esau will be enemies with and under the subjection of the nation of Israel that came from Jacob. This was all part of God's sovereign will and plan for his chosen people. This part of the story makes it acutely aware that the Lord is aware of, concerned about, and involved in the very existence of the unborn. It also suggests that human personality is well in the way to be informed even in the womb. God's answer probably didn't bring Rebecca much comfort, but she seemed content and was able to endure the pain of her pregnancy. Both Isaac and Rebecca sought after the counsel of the Lord in prayer for the struggles of barrenness and a difficult pregnancy. And that brings us to the second next step on the back of your communication card, which is seek the Lord's counsel in continual prayer in the midst of my struggles. The third point is divided. We find that in Genesis 25, verses 24 to 26. Again, this is what God's word says. When her days leading to the delivery were at an end, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to him, to them. So when the time came for Rebecca to give birth, she had twins, proving the truth of the oracle from God. Only time would tell who the stronger one would be and what would happen when the older one ended up serving the younger one. The narrator wants us to take notice of the unusual birth of these two boys. With the birth of the firstborn, we're to take notice of his appearance. He came out red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And his parents named him Esau. Names in the ancient world were important and often made statements about deity or the circumstances surrounding the child's birth. So Esau is described using only adjectives. And his name came from three plays on the sounds of words. So we have Esau, means hairy. You see Esau and Seir, sounds a little like. The Hebrew word for hairy, Seir, sounds like Seir, which will be the place that Esau will settle. The Hebrew word for red, Admoni, sounds like Edom, Edom, which was Esau's nickname, relating to his red skin or hair, and later to the red stew, which he sold his birthright for. The secondborn came out with his hand grasping the heel of his brother, so they named him Jacob. Now, Jacob is described in action from the very beginning. His name made statements both about deity, God, and the circumstances surrounding his birth. Jacob, Ya'akab, means may God protect. and sounds like the word for heal, a keb, or watch behind or to follow closely. It has this idea of God watching our sex, like in the military. He's protecting and guarding our rear flank. We can see that God was already protecting Jacob in the womb and would surely protect him in the future. Heal, a keb, sounds like the word for deceived, a cob. So because of the way Jacob stole Esau's birthright, as we'll see next week, the name Jacob came to mean someone who had the tendency to supplant, to trip, or to cheat. Jacob latching onto Esau's heel conveys the idea of deception, betrayal, and opportunism. Hamilton, in his commentary, states this. Even the infantile Jacob is acting out the oracle of Yahweh. From the very moment of birth, the, the divine plan is in evident operation. The parents observed the unusual circumstances of the birth in view of God's oracle and commemorated them in the naming. This commemorative naming was recognition that God's oracle was the answer to their prayer. Lastly, we're told that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to her sons. Our narrative is bookmarked by how old Isaac was when he married Rebecca and then how old he was when Rebecca gave birth. Isaac and Rebecca waited on the Lord for the continuation of the promise to be realized for 20 years, confirming the faith of Isaac and the faithfulness of the Lord's promise. God in his sovereignty did not allow their struggles of barrenness and difficult pregnancy to get in the way of his will and plan. <clears throat> in conclusion of this story, Brothers Clifton and William Prentice were born near Baltimore, Maryland. And when the Civil War began, Clifton enlisted in the Union Army and rose to the ranks to major. William enlisted in the 1st Maryland Infantry of the Confederate States. And on April 2nd, 1865, <clears throat> after the Union and Confederate armies had been stalemated at Petersburg, Virginia for almost 10 months, 
General Grant ordered a full assault to break the rebel lines. Major Clifton Prentice led the 6th Maryland as they attacked the rebels and was reported to be the first officer to enter the enemy's lines. Almost immediately, he was shot in the chest. William, defending the Confederate trenches against his brother's regiment, <clears throat> was struck by a shell fragment above his, above his right knee. An account given in 1920 by J.R. King in the National Tribune recorded this pathetic incident. Two of the 6th Maryland men, like many others, were going over the field, ministering to the wounded without regard to the uniform they wore. They came upon a wounded Confederate who, after receiving some water, asked if the 6th Maryland was anywhere near here. The reply was, we belong to that, that, that regiment. Why do you ask? Well, the Confederate replied that he had a brother in that regiment. Who is he? The Confederate said, Captain Clifton K. Prentice. Our boy said, yes, he is our major now, and he is lying over yonder wounded. The Confederate said, I'd like to see him. Word was at once carried to Major Prentice. He declined to see him. He said, I want to see no man who fired on my country's flag. Colonel Hill, after giving directions to have the wounded Confederate brought over, knelt down beside the major and pleaded with him to see his brother. When the wayward brother was laid beside him, our major for a moment glared at him. The Confederate brother smiled, and that was the one touch of nature. Out went both hands, and with tears streaming down their cheeks, these two brothers who had met on many bloody fields on opposite sides for three years were once again brought together. William died on June 24, 1865, and his brother died on August 18, less than two months after his brother Clifton. They were, Clifton was buried next to his brother William. They've lain, lain side by side for more than a century. You can see it there. <clears throat> we'll see later in Genesis that Esau and Jacob were reconciled, just like Clifton and William Prentice were. You know, if you're going through a sibling robbery today, it's not too late for you to be reconciled to them. It'll take patience. It'll take prayer. And it even may take you being the bigger person. But this is true in sibling rivalry conflicts and with conflicts with other human beings as well. And with the health of the Holy Spirit, if we humble ourselves to the other party, sibling or not, reconciliation can take place. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. <clears throat> as the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, let us be people of reconciliation. You are our supreme example of wanting reconciliation with us by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would, in the midst of our own struggles, wait upon your timing and try not to fix it on our own. I pray that we would seek your counsel through prayer in the midst of those struggles as well. Take us from this place and give us divine appointments with those who need to be reconciled to you and allow us to proclaim your salvation to them. In Jesus' name, amen.